I just find it funny. You know, when you go to rock concerts, even airplanes like we'll board tomorrow, the front seats are always the most expensive. And somehow in the church it gets flipped, right? The most expensive seats are the very back, and these are the cheap seats. I don't know what's with that, but... Hey, so the, uh, the, verse I'm gonna, uh, the verses I'm going to share with you um, this morning are, are probably very familiar. You've probably had people stand on this very platform here and, and um, preach these verses numerous times. And the danger is, though, as, as we become familiar with a passage like this, as we, we breeze over the passage without really understanding uh, what it's saying and the implications upon our own lives. And so it's very key, I think, that we understand that when Jesus said these words, I like, Marty, that you read that whole chapter because it gave us some context. Kind of this is one of the last things Jesus says to them, right, before he departs to be with the Father and to sit at the right hand. And so this is important stuff. But what we need to understand is that when Jesus said these things to his disciples, he just spent three years with them, right? And they, they understood why they were to make disciples. They understood what a disciple looked like, and they understood how this was to be accomplished. And so this is the impetus for what I'm going to say this evening. I want to unpack the meaning of these few verses for you so that you can obey them, right? And obedience really is the key to this whole thing, isn't it? We want to not just be hearers of the word, as James says, we want to be doers of the word. And so transformation in our lives happens as we step out in faith and we obey what God has told us to do. You won't grow in faith if you don't step out in faith and and obey. And when you step out, you see God show up, and that's when you start to experience change and transformation of who you are. So the problem, before we unpack this, we need to acknowledge that Christians, I know in North America, and I'm assuming it's in the West as a whole, Western Europe and and, um, North America as well, we have not done a great job of living this calling out. We haven't done a great job of making disciples. Oftentimes this passage is referred to with tongue-in-cheek as not the great commission but the great omission because we haven't lived it out. A guy named Floyd Bartell in his book A New Look at Church Growth, he writes that 95% of Christians in the Western world will never, now this should wake you up, will never in their lifetime lead someone to Christ or disciple another person. 95% will not obey the Great Commission. And when you stand before the Lord, you know, he's going to be asking you a couple of questions. He's going to be saying, you know, what kind of disciple are you? And what kind of disciples did you make for my kingdom? And you don't want to get there and say, I'm part of that 95%, right? As churches, we need to start shifting this number so it's 95% do make disciples and do lead people to faith in Jesus. You know, at first I didn't really believe this number. Um, I thought, that sounds, that sounds crazy. So our church is uh, about 1,300 people. And I wanted to check it out for myself, so I kind of did a bit of a a test. And I I started to measure and to count the number of people that were actually engaged in leading people to faith and discipling other people. And I'm sad to say that this number is true. It's true. 
at least in our context, and I assume it is in the rest of it. I mean, the, the West wouldn't be in such rough shape spiritually. We wouldn't be declining if people were actually obeying this, right? I used to work with the Navigators. I, I did 10 years with the Navigators. Are you guys familiar with the Navigators? No? They're uh, Dawson Trotman. He was from the United States. It's a, it's a disciple-making movement that Dawson Trotman started. And the reason that he, he started this movement... He led this guy to faith in Jesus. He, he, had a, he had a deal with God. He said, I'm going to share the gospel with one person every day. And one day he got into bed and he, uh, he oh, you remember, oh, I didn't, it was like 11 o'clock at night. I didn't share the gospel with somebody today. And he said, oh, Lord, I'm gonna, I'll do two tomorrow. And he said, the Lord said to him, Doss, if this starts, where does it end? And so Dawson got up and he put his jeans on and his shirt on. He got in his car driving, looking for anybody. Just if he wanted to go back to bed, I wanted to find somebody, share the gospel with him and get back to me. He saw this guy hitchhiking on the side of the road. He pulled over, picked him up, said, get in the car. He goes, I got to share the gospel with one person so I can get back to bed. So the guy got in the car and he started to kind of share with him and he realized he'd already had led this guy to Christ, but the guy was cursing and swearing and wasn't changed at all. He'd made a commitment to Jesus but Dawson realized he hadn't followed him up. He hadn't helped him to grow as a believer in Jesus. And so at that moment, Dawson realized, I need to start following up all these people that I've led to the Lord and help them to grow and to become mature in Jesus. You know, it'd be like having a baby and just leaving it there on the doorstep and thinking that it's going to grow somehow, right? I mean, Marty, I've been at your house the last few days. There's a lot of work in raising kids, right? It's tiring. It's, it's it, a lot of energy and there's strategy and planning that go into it. Well, Leroy Imes was a navigator, and he wrote a book called The Lost Art of Disciple-Making to illustrate this problem that we have, that people aren't, <coughs> excuse me, sharing the gospel and discipling people. And he shares a story about a shoe factory. And he says, this guy wanted to start a shoe factory, and so he went out and he recruited shareholders. He got 10 shareholders who contributed 10% of the cost of the factory. And they all anteed up the money. And he went off and he bought a big building and he hired a workforce and, uh, you know, they started doing what they do. And a year came up and the shareholders wanted to have a shareholders meeting and so they gathered and they said, okay, how many shoes have we made? And the guy said, we haven't made any shoes. Well, what? This is a shoe factory. You haven't made any shoes? What have you been doing? Well, he said, well, we're really busy. We're sweeping the floors, we're painting things, we're, we're tuning up the machinery, but we haven't made any, any shoes. And in a lot of ways, I mean, it's, it's humorous, but shoe factories make shoes. That's what they do. And if those shareholders had any wits about them, they would have said, give us our money back, we're out of here, right? Churches make disciples. That's what they do. And if somebody walked through the doors of your church and said, how many disciples have you made this year, would you be able to answer that question? Would you even be able to answer what is a disciple in the first place? Now, before I get kind of into this, I want to just kind of briefly outline how we got here. Because I think it's important to understand how we got here so that you can understand the way out. And there's three, I'm going to be very brief on this. You could do a lot more reading on it if you want. There's three movements that have shaped the Western world over the last several hundred years. And the church, I'm sad to say, has been conformed to this pattern rather than us transforming the culture. <coughs> so the first one is the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, 1700s, 
guys like Rene Descartes, you know, his famous saying in the Enlightenment was, I think, therefore I am. So during the Enlightenment, knowledge became the key. Logic and reason became the key to progress and to moving forward. Now, lots of great things came out of this. There were advancements in, in medicine, um, in science, but this was done at the expense of faith. This was the, the, the period where the separation of church and state took place. Faith was sidelined in favor of knowledge and reason. And so this movement made us knowledge seekers, knowledge-based people, right? We want knowledge. Knowledge is the answer to our problems. The second movement was the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution happened in the um, 18, late 1800s, um, early 1900s even. And during the time in North America, in 1890, 90% of the population lived on farms. And the rest of the 10% were there to service the 90%. Right? So you'd have the general store and you'd have the guy that would do the, you know, the blacksmith and all that kind of stuff. <coughs> you got to excuse me, I've, had a, I've been struggling with a bit of a cough lately. So once in a while I might have to clear my throat. <coughs> so during this time, the Industrial Revolution, these big factories were made. People started to move from these... Uh, extended families, right? Extended families would be, you know, your, your mom, your dad, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, grandma, grandpas. They'd all live together, maybe 30 people on a farm, and there'd be this kind of community. Well, people started to move into the cities because there was better jobs that paid more money, and we had the nuclear family that was born. Now, a guy named David Brooks wrote an article in The Atlantic called The Nuclear Family Was a Disaster. And what he says happened is when we hived off into these nuclear families, the family became much more brittle, right? In the extended family, there was accountability. There was lots of adults speaking into the lives of your children. There was support. Someone got sick, there was financial support, and the family support, encouragement. When we hived off, we became individualistic. So now we have knowledge seekers who are individualistic. The third movement was the techno technological revolution. And this was really <clears throat> introduced by Henry Ford in the introduction of the assembly line. And so for the first time in history, middle-income people could afford expensive items that they could never before, afford before, like the automobile. And then this spilled over into all kinds of other things, televisions and you know, things that people would never be able to afford. Because they could be mass-produced, now we could all afford them. This made us what? Consumers. So now we have knowledge-based people, individual pe individualistic people who are consumers, right? Now, park that over here in your mind, okay? Because I'm going to come back at this at the end and explain why that matters and how it makes sense. So if you go to slide number two, <coughs> there's three questions I want to answer this evening. Normally, I would kind of go through the, the passage kind of word by word and verse by verse and kind of do an exposition of the passage. I want to deal with it more thematically tonight. So I, I know there's a bullet point there. So the first one, three questions we're going to answer. Why should we make disciples? What is a disciple? And how are disciples made? Okay, three simple questions. The first one, why should we make disciples? So Simon Sinek, he's a kind of a leadership guru uh, in the States. He uses this thing called the golden circle. And he says, if you look at all the, the successful organizations the successful businesses, they always start with asking why, and they move out to how, and then to what, right? And this is important. He says this is one of the most important questions you can ask is why do we do what we do, 
right? And the reason it is, now with all this brain imaging technology and stuff, they can see things that they could never see before. But when you ask the question why, the part of the brain, the limbic brain, lights up, and that's the part that's responsible for purpose and meaning in life. You ever notice your kids, they always ask you, why? Why? Why, Dad? Why? 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 And you, get, you keep going back until you get to the kind of the crux of the matter, right? That's because they need to understand, why am I doing this? Why does it ha have... What's the meaning? What's the purpose? But what most organizations do, and I would say churches, we start at what? What are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to make disciples. Then we might get to how do we do that, and then we never get to the why. Or we have a superficial <coughs> answer to the question why. Now, again, we have a staff of about 15 at our church. So I went around the office. I said, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Simon Sinek is wrong about this. Maybe we're all asking why, and we have a, a profound answer to the question why. So I went around to each office in my church, and these are seasoned you know, ministry veterans who've been around a long time. I said, why do we make disciples? What do you think the, question, the answer, the most common answer I got was? Because Jesus said so. That's what they all said. Every single one of them, because Jesus said so. Now that's right. It's the right answer. But that's not really the why, right? When Jesus said this, he said this not in a vacuum. He said this with three years of ministry where he was explaining all this through parables and teaching and conversations. He answered the why. He did. So yes, Jesus said so, but why did Jesus say so? You could, well, why did Jesus say that's what a little kid would say, right? Because they understand that's not that that's the that's the what. Jesus in this verse, him saying so is the what we're supposed to do. He doesn't tell us in these verses how we're to do it or why we're to do it. Okay? So why are we <coughs> to do it? Well, uh, let me just catch up with my notes here. Let's see where I am. Uh, there we go. It starts with God. So I love this, um, this quote. It's a guy named Timothy Tennant. He's a missiologist out of the United States. He says, mission is first and foremost about God and his redemptive purposes and initiatives in the world, quite apart from any actions or tasks or strategies or initiatives the church may undertake. It's got nothing to do with us, the why, right? To put it plainly, mission is more about God and who he is than about us and what we do. So that sounds like a bunch of theological mumbo-jumbo, maybe. Let me, uh, let me explain what it means. So go to the next one. What is it about God <clears throat> that why would we want to make disciples? So go to the next slide. It all goes back to the Trinity. Before anything was created, God existed in a, in a communal, in a community of three. They're loving each other. They're blessing each other. They're encouraging each other, right? They're just saying, woohoo, this is fantastic. Father, I love you. Oh, son, you're, you're the best. And the Spirit's getting involved. And they're all praising each other, encouraging each other, serving each other. And then I imagine it stops for a second. Now I'm using my sanctified imagination here. But it stops for a second and they go, you know, this is really good. This is awesome. We don't want to keep it just to ourselves. Let's create other people like us so that they can enjoy what we have. You see, because one aspect of a loving community, love always wants to expand itself so others can enjoy what it has. Does that make sense? A church that doesn't want to expand itself isn't a loving church. It's a self-centered church. Right? So, this, so God then creates. 
right? Love, by de definition, looks outward. It, it desires to expand its community so others can enjoy and experience what it has. And so God creates these two man and woman. <clears throat> Little smiley faces. I did, couldn't figure out what to put there. But <clears throat> and so you look, he, he created them in his image. What does that mean? They had the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. They were like him in character, right? And they loved each other, and they were celebrating in this community. They were part of this community of love now, right? And I love the Westminster, you guys, you're Presbyterians, you'll love this. The Westminster Confession says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I love what John Piper twisted this a little bit in his book, uh, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. He said, uh, <clears throat> man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. He just changed one word. But it's a significant little alteration. But nonetheless, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever by enjoying him forever. Take whatever one you like. So what does it mean to glorify? Thoughts. What does it mean to glorify something? This is the part you get to contribute in. <coughs> to elevate? Okay, yeah, to elevate, to lift up. Any other <coughs> thoughts? Pardon me? Give him credit? Yeah, yeah. This isn't a trick question. I'm not trying to bamboozle you here. To elevate, so to make famous, to give him credit, <coughs> to honor. There's one, one word part, you can use this word in a different way though. So let me read you this sentence. Um, they gloried in the early summer sunshine. That's a use of glory, isn't it? They gloried in the early morning sunshine. What does that mean? They enjoyed it. They delighted in it, right? I think we miss it. it we, we get all kind of rigid, right? We got to... That's right, honoring and glory, and, and, but I think the way that we do that, the way that we elevate God, the way that we give him credit, the way that we honor him is by delighting in him. And when we don't delight in him, it just becomes legalistic rules, right? Now, I know sometimes, I mean, Marty was saying, you know, sometimes we lose that. We're walking in the woods and we say, hey, you know, we don't see the, we don't see all the good stuff. We forget about it. So you need to ask God, help me to delight in you again. That's what we have to be brought back to. Help me to delight. Then all this other stuff becomes easy. The greatest evangelists are, are brand new Christians because they're still delighting in God. They're, they're just full of them, right? It's all magical still. It's all beautiful. And then somehow as Christians, over time, we start to lose that. And we become kind of stale and rigid. The only way to get that back is to say, Holy Spirit, give it to me. Give me that delight, right? David prayed that. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That can only come from God. So if, you don't, if you're not delighting in God, if you only take one thing out of what I'm saying today, get on your knees and ask God to give you that delight back in him. And all the other stuff will fall by the wayside. So we know the, the story, what comes next, the fall happens. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> so sin gets into the way, and we, we lose our delight in God. We start to delight in other things, and um, we become self-centered. Um, and uh, so let me, I'll show you this picture. This to me is the best example of sin I've ever come across. 
<clears throat> do you know what a thorn is? Biologically, what happens? A thorn is a flower turned in on itself. That which was created to be beautiful and fragrant has turned in on itself and become hard and prickly. And that's what sin has done to us. We became thorns instead of the roses that we were created to become. And so the purpose of making disciples then is to restore us, is to be used by God to rebuild the image of God in people so they can delight in him and bring honor and fame to his name. What, a, what an awesome calling. We're called to restore the image in ourselves and in other people so that they can delight in their creator and bring him glory and honor and fame and praise. Amen? There is no other calling. That's it. If you're wasting your time doing other things, you're missing it, right? Disciple making is the mission of the church. It's what we're called to do. You're called. Why are we doing this? We're doing it because we're helping restore the image of God in people so they can delight in him again. That's what we're called to do. This is the greatest calling in the history of humanity. <clears throat> That's why we're doing it. So let's move on to the second question. What is a disciple? You know, um, definitions are important, right? We are, we're people of language and we... Uh, <clears throat> if, we're not if we're not sharing a definition, then we're not speaking the same language, right? I used to be a quarterback, in Ameri I was an American football quarterback, and so I would be the guy that was responsible to come up, you'd get in the huddle, and you'd call your play, right? And you'd go, ready, break, and everybody would run to the line. Well, that play had meaning, it was definite, everybody knew what the responsibilities were. Imagine if you went to the huddle and you said, okay, everybody just do what you want to do, all right, ready, break. Everybody runs out and they just do whatever, and you're going back, looking for someone to throw the ball, and these big brutes of guys are coming at you trying to kill you, and, you, you know, it's, it's a waste of time. Or let, me let me use a different analogy. <clears throat> Here I have a blueprint, okay? I want this house built. This is the house that I want. I'm the originator of the idea. It's my house. I'm one who's paying the money to have it built, right? So what was your name again? Aideen. So I give Aideen the blueprint and I say, hey, I'm hiring you to build that house for me, okay? Now Aideen says, well, you know what? I'm just going to put that aside and I'm going to get all these people to help me to, uh, to build this house, but I'm not going to use the blueprint, right? I'm just going to say, let's build a house. And everybody has a sort of an idea what a house is. It has a roof and it has walls, and, but is it a two-story or a one-story? Does it have a basement, a full basement, or just a crawl space? Three bedrooms or four bedrooms? Does the kitchen have an island? Or is, you know, I mean, I want the, it's my house, right? And if I come there and you've built this house and you haven't consulted the blueprint that I gave you, what do you think the owner's going to do when he gets there? This isn't the house I wanted. That's not what I was looking for. I wanted that house, right? And so Jesus, God has given us a clear picture of what a disciple is supposed to be. And in most churches, there is not a, an agreed upon. I don't know what, what the situation is here. I'm, I'm sure uh, Marty's working on this. But you need an agreed upon definition. If someone says, hey, uh, I'm, I'm discipling this person. The other person knows exactly what it is you're trying to produce at the end. Marty, you alluded to this in your talking, right? We need to have a picture 
of what we're trying to do. So what did Jesus mean when he said make disciples? How did those in the culture understand him? Because that's really all that matters. It doesn't matter what we, we don't have the right to define this. When Jesus spoke to his disciples, they knew what he was saying. They, are, they understood it. It meant what Jesus wanted it to mean and what they understood. <clears throat> so there's five traits of a deaf. I, I, I dug this up, part of our studies that's been so enriching. Uh, this came from a book that I was reading. And this guy did a, a huge study on, on what it meant um, to be a disciple. And uh, these are the five traits that he came up with. So the first is the person decides to follow a teacher. So this can happen one of two ways. I could go to the teacher and say, hey, would you take me on as your disciple? And then the teacher would have the right to say no or yes. Or the teacher could invite me. They, they may see something in me and they say, hey, would you come and follow me? And then I have the right to say yes or no. I, I can opt in or opt out, right? So that was the first thing. The second thing is, disciples would memorize the teacher's words. Back then, they didn't have the Bible written yet, right? They had the Old Testament, but a lot of it was by memory. And you can memorize a lot of Scripture if you want. There's Muslims and Christians who have memorized the entire Quran or the whole Bible. <clears throat> and so, but today, I would say, instead of memorizing the teacher, I think it's good to memorize the teacher's words, but to know, to be familiar with the teacher's words is, would be... A characteristic. The third is imitating the teacher's life and character. We want to become like the teacher. The fourth is learning the teacher's way of ministry. How does the teacher go about ministering? And how does he operate? What does he do? And then lastly, they would raise up their own disciples. So when Jesus said, go and make disciples, these are the five things that flashed through their mind. They knew this. And so, of course, when he said, go and make disciples, they were, they were probably anticipating this because that's what disciples do. Disciples go and they make more disciples. They don't just stop. So this is key. These five things is what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people. So now when we say, okay, I'm not Jesus, but I'm a little further down the road than somebody, I can help you to become more like Jesus. I can help you to know the teacher's words. I can help you become more like Jesus in character. I can help facilitate that. I can't do it, but I can help. I can put you in the right environments. I can help you learn the teacher's way of ministry, and then I can teach you how to go and make your own disciples. That's what was happening when Jesus said this. So, <clears throat> go to the next slide. Um, at West Highland, we've adopted a definition, our church. <clears throat> we took it out of Matthew 4.19. Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so, in there, I think, is, is the definition of a disciple. That's what we've adopted. So, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. That's the definition that we've adopted as a, as a church, church-wide. Now, if you look at this, so you take the next slide, these three things, if you line them up with the five traits, following Jesus, they decide to follow a teacher, and they know the teacher's words. Those are the two that would, follow under, that would fall under following. Is changed by Jesus. That imitates the, the teacher's life and character. And then it is committed to the mission, learns the teacher's way of ministry, and raises up their own disciples. So those five things are incorporated into the definition that we have as, as a church. Next one. So last, how are disciples made? 
Well, remember those three things. We became, through those three movements, we became knowledge seekers, individuals, and consumers. So most churches then, because this is embedded, and this isn't our, it's not, there's no one to blame here. You know, it's like a fish that swims in water, and they just become, that just becomes part of the culture. So churches then have become to believe that discipleship is behavior modification through knowledge acquisition. You follow me on that? We want to give you knowledge, right? And then by you taking knowledge in, somehow that's going to change you, right? And your, your behavior will be modified. And a lot of us, you know, my, actually my mom phoned me up the other day. And she said, you know, I, I do Bible study every day for an hour. And I go to all these studies. And I'm not changing. I'm not being transformed. That broke my heart, right? It's like, oh, my mom. Because it's not just about knowledge. It's, we need knowledge, but there's something more that we need. And I'll show you that in a minute. So it's, it's not just, it's not behavior modification through knowledge acquisition. Um, and so what, what most, because churches believe this, then they cater to the individualistic needs. They start to offer programs, right? Everybody sits in rows and you have a teacher at the front. So even it feels like you're in a group, you're not really in a group because you're not interacting with each other. You're just listening to the person give you more knowledge. And it's catered to your individualistic and consumeristic needs. And then we have tricked ourselves into thinking that we're producing um, disciples. But we're only producing half-baked, partial disciples. And if you want proof of this, um, go and ask a church, how do you measure qualitative growth. How do you measure quality? I don't go there yet. How do you measure qualitative growth? And, and most churches will have no clue. How do, you know, how do you measure whether someone is becoming more of a disciple or not? The measuring, the matrix that we, that we have started to use in churches is the three B's. Buildings, budgets, and, and butts in the pews. Bodies, right? And if we have more people and bigger budgets and bigger buildings, somehow we've, we've, we've convinced ourselves that we're being successful. But those are just qualitative measurements. Now, those are important. They don't totally discount those. But we need ways to measure qualitatively. So go to the next slide. I think becoming a disciple, this is from discipleship.org, is a lot like the physical growth process, right? So the first one, I don't know if you, can you guys see that? Is it too small? No? So the very first slide, the, the, the very left end there, it says the person's spiritually dead. And then there's a chasm and there's Jesus there. And then they come to faith and they become a spiritual, they become spiritually alive. But they're just a little baby, right? They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know how to protect themselves. They, they need help, right? And then they become a spiritual child. Well, they're still, you know, children are kind of self-focused and, 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 you know, they, they, it's about them, right? So you need to help them to grow out of that to become spiritual young adults, so now they're other-focused, but they still ha aren't ready to parent themselves, right? They can't, they're not physically mature enough or whatever. So you, you want to make them into spiritual parents so that they can have spiritual children, and then spiritual grandparents so that they, their children are having spiritual children. The goal of being a parent is to raise kids that are independent, can have their own families, raise their own kids who will one day have kids of their own. So most of us in the church, we get stuck at being spiritual young adults, yeah, we've started to focus. We want to serve in the church. It's not all about us. But 95% of us will never become a spiritual parent or grandparent. 
That's what Jesus wants. That's spiritual maturity is, is growing to that, to that point. <clears throat> so how do you do this? Quickly here, I'm going to give you a, just a, an easy kind of thing to think about. So making disciples happens in the context of relationships. It's not about just knowledge. You need knowledge, but it's not just about knowledge acquisition. So it starts at the top. So the middle there, that bullseye, is the, the definition of a disciple. That's the picture that you're shooting for. The top is the heart. It's a relationship. You're in a relationship with somebody, right? Then you have 2D, which is discovery and discussion around the Bible. That's where the knowledge part comes in, right? You are reading the scriptures. You're discussing the scriptures. What do they mean? How do, we, how do you put them into practice? All that kind of stuff. Then the 3A is application, accountability, and affirmation. So now what you're doing is you're helping the person to apply what you've learned, right? You're holding them accountable to God to, to, put, to put that into practice, and you're affirming and encouraging them when they have success, right? That's kind of what a discipling relationship, a teacher-mentor relationship looks like. Your relationship around the scriptures, helping them to put it into practice, and helping them to grow in that way. Is that the, is that the last one? So we come back to the verse. So how do we put this, what do we do with this? <clears throat> Let me just give you a couple of quick uh, points in summary. Um, obedience to this passage is just as relevant to a church of 50 people as it is to a church of 5,000 people. Right? We need to be making disciples. You're called to make disciples as a church. That's the way you're going to grow as a church. That's the way you're going to impact this community. You guys, rows and rows of houses everywhere here, right? That's the way that you're going to grow as a community. As a church, I, I think you've got to remind each other, encourage one another to keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get sidetracked on superfluous things. Make disciples. That's what you're called to do. That's the mission of the church. That's the only mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus. You need to come up with an agreed-upon definition. You need to have a process that you can all agree on as well. And then once you do this, you can put it into practice. But on an individual basis, let me, let me just say this to you. This is my last point. This week, let me challenge each of you this week to go, go before the Lord and to say, give me one man or one woman to pour my life in, to help them become someone who's not as far along the Christian life as I am, to help them become more like Jesus, to help them learn the ways of Jesus, the words of Jesus. Give me one man, give me one woman that I can invest and pour my life into that will outlive me, right, and help them to do the same. And the seniors, I want to have a special word to the seniors this morning. You guys are the most, I don't know about here, but I'm saying in our church, the seniors are the most underutilized group of people, but you have the most to offer. You have the most life experience. Listen, there's families that are trying to raise their kids, and you've already done that successfully. You can come alongside them and help them and disciple them and teach them how to do that, how to raise a family. Right? You've already lived through all kinds of stuff, money management, and you, you know the scriptures well, and you've walked with the Lord for so long. So seniors, don't feel sidelined, pushed to the margins. Get involved. You guys, who's my man? Who's my woman that I can pour my life into? You need to pray that this week, and then when and God, I mean, he wants this more than I, I want it for you or you want it for yourself. If you start praying that in, in sincerity, God, give me my man, give me my woman, he will bring someone along your path that you can start to invest and pour your life into, and then you'll start to see spiritual generations of people 
rising up to the glory of God, people who will be restored to the image of God so that they can delight in him once again and bring him glory and fame. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this great vision of making disciples that you've called us to do. Wow, what a task. What an awesome privilege. And uh, help us to, to take that statistic of 95% that don't do this and smash it so that it's only 5%. May that be true of this church. Five years from now, may this church, may each person here have someone that they are discipling that they are pouring their lives into and that they would see those people pouring their lives into someone else so that they could become spiritual grandparents. Lord, would you make this so for your glory and for our delight. In Jesus' name, amen.